Hello, and welcome to Courage to Be, a podcast on becoming. This is episode number three. This week, we will spend time talking about the Four Noble Truths and how that intersects with mental health. We also ask that uh, you share this podcast if you find it enjoyable or like it, rate it, whatever you can do to help us get this out there for people. So this will hopefully lead to some, some good discourse and conversation. If you have ideas or questions, feel free to email us at contact at couragetobepod.com. I'm here with my friend, Steve, and we'll just go ahead and get started. How are you doing today, Steve? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Got through a really wicked cold snap, and that's a, a period of suffering, and now I'm elated because it's 45 degrees. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not 45 degrees here. It's a little bit colder than that, but yeah. Um, that's certainly one of the forms of suffering is the coldness. <laughs> um, so last podcast, we spent a little bit of time talking about our understanding of mental health. And we also talked about interconnectedness and, um, and impermanence as concepts and how foundational those are. I, I think kind of touching on that again, um, because to my understanding of the Four Noble Truths, they're, they're very interconnected to that. Um, and so... The idea is that, you know, everything is interconnected. Um, I exist in relationship to everything else that exists. And without everything else, I wouldn't be as I am. And then also change is constant and everything is impermanent. And, and those are just foundational concepts that I think, um, you know, are helpful to understand. Do you want to speak a little bit more about that as kind of just a refresher, Steve? Or Yeah, I mean, the impermanence uh, concept is, is sometimes tough for we Westerners to get in our spiritual lens and practice, because it's kind of scary, because according to Buddhist teaching, we attach to things. We want things to be a certain way, and we invest things with emotional valence. And so to then be told, well, you can do that, but be careful, because everything's going to change and go away. So it's kind of tough, but it's true. Everything's in a state of constant change. We often don't emphasize that because, you know, I'm looking at my new file cabinet and lamp in my office, and there it is. It's an object. I like it. But someday it won't be here. And so it's kind of tough for Westerners to really put that in the center of their practice. And it does take practice to get there, but things are in constant change. I remember one of the uh, Buddhist teachers I was graced to uh, be taught by brought that up. He said, you know, someday this temple won't be here. Uh, someday the cement that makes the parking lot will go away. It's just a matter of time. So it leads you to reevaluate your your attachments and you know what you invest time and energy in, or it should. So I would say that is an important thing to pay attention to because as we move along and embrace impermanence, it can be tough for us because we are culturally clingers. <laughs> we attach a lot. And uh, in terms of uh, inner being, Mr. Chris here shared with me a Thich Nhat Hanh text, and I've been gobbling that up. And he talks a lot about, you know, when you look at something like a piece of paper, uh, you can actually see the clouds and the water and the people who cut the tree to create the paper. If, if you pay attention, that paper couldn't exist without all of those constituent elements being there. And so it's kind of that, that we, we were here because of our family, our society, conception, our development. And so we're all interlaced with everything else. We have to breathe in air and release. So it just depends on how you look at it. Well, and then the idea too, that um, everything exists based on causes and conditions that allow it to exist. 
I think that's another part of that and that, you know, we create, everything changes and we create and, and respond to the causes and conditions and we develop ideas about how things are supposed to be or how we want things to be. And that causes pain and suffering because that's not how it actually is, which we'll get into. But that concept of interbeing and interconnectedness, uh, interconnectedness, interbeing, and then also impermanence. I've heard that, um, again, by Thich Nhat Hanh, spoken about as a way to understand the Four Noble Truths. And, and Steve and I chatted about this uh, the other day, but I thought it'd be good to, to talk about it here. So my understanding of the Four Noble Truths is kind of really easily explained through that lens is that, you know, you can't have one thing without something else. Like you can't have up without down. Uh, you can't have left without right. If left stopped existing, then right would stop existing because it exists in response to something else, right? You can't have happiness without sadness uh, because sadness lets you know when you're not happy and happy lets you know when you're not sad, right? And so the same thing is that, you know, you have the reality that we suffer, that we experience pain, and that's just the truth. Um, we, we suffer ill-being, and so if ill-being exists, then well-being exists. And so the first noble truth is that ill-being exists. And the third noble truth is that well-being exists, right? And so you have ill-being. And since ill-being is there, then you also have well-being too. They both are possible states. And, and the second is that if you look deeply into your, into your ill-being, you find the conditions that caused it to be created, like you can look into your suffering and see the causes and conditions that create that suffering, which means you can also create suffering and you can also engage in things to create well-being and create um, non-suffering. And so that's steps two and four. You know, two is the um, things that feed the suffering and four is the things that uh, feed well-being. Um, it's overly simplified, but it's kind of a nice way to just understand it. Like suffering exists. You can do stuff to make yourself suffer. Well-being exists. You can do stuff to cause that as well. Well, and, and, and one thing that, that happened to me in my Buddhist path was, uh, you know, I started out with the standard teaching that the first of the four, life is suffering. And to be honest, I think I can be honest here, that put me off. I, I just like, okay, now life is also good. You know, there's some good things there. And what happened a few years later was someone said, well, some translations would have it that instead of life is suffering, uh, life inherently involves dissatisfaction. And that just opened it up for me. I'm like, okay, now that I can bite into, you know, that, that's a sandwich I can digest. And so, yeah, I think the idea, or at least how I now understand it, the Buddha first taught was that if we really look at things, uh, they typically are dissatisfying at some point. Things are going to go away, as we talked about earlier. Things change. And the main part of our suffering is when we want things to be different than they are, and we get attached to that. But that disappointment, um, well, some people still say life is suffering, you know, but life is disappointment, or there's inherent disappointment because of the way we interact with and cling to and attach to things. That really blew it open for me. So I just wanted to put that out there. If you think about life as suffering, it's kind of eh. But And some translations I found later do interpret it as being life is not always satisfactory. Well, I was I was doing some reading, and, and again, Thich Nhat Hanh, I've been reading a fair amount of him lately, different book than the one I recommended to you. This is actually one that uh, you got me a while back ago. But, you know, we talked a bit about nirvana and as awakening, understanding that things are as they are, not as you want them to be. And this talks about how Buddha taught that nirvana was the joy of completely extinguishing our ideas and concepts rather than just suffering. It's not just that we suffer. The suffering is there because of our attachment, like you said, to 
what we want things to be or what we don't want things to be and not realizing that we don't have control to cause that to happen. We can just do what we can do. And then also, you know, realizing that it's going to change and that's part of it instead of resisting that change. And so I think suffering is a part of it, but it's not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's freedom in that. Or at least I've experienced that to, you know, say, let me enjoy this moment and not mess it up by trying to make it be this way forever because <laughs> I like it. And then conversely, and this was really big for me, okay, here comes something that you don't really care to do. And the Buddhist path, especially this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, permits me now to stop and saying, what's in this for me? Or what is this? And just step into it versus trying to avert it and control it. Because a lot of times we face up to that adversity. And we can learn a lot from that. This kind of drifts into what it means to be mentally healthy, as we talked about last time. Well, which is why we we started with that is because it is very connected. I mean, I think, you know, you've had experience doing clinical work. I don't think you're currently practicing, right? Um, and I'm currently practicing and have been for a while. And then also in our conversations with students, you know, everybody wants to be happy. And I think a lot of people think that's the point of counseling is to be happy. But one of the things that kind of tangentially I connect with is a lot of the writings by Viktor Frankl. And he has a quote that says, happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue, um, which aligns right with these Four Noble Truths and that, you know, happiness is a byproduct of the lack of suffering. Um, it's not something that you achieve and hold on to. It's something that you notice when it's there and appreciate when it's there and then notice when it's gone because the absence of happiness makes happiness great. And I think we we muddy it up and... and I always think of having a the room all picked up and my dog comes in and tears it completely apart and her toys all over the place. That's kind of it's kind of what happens in my mind if I attach or want things to be different. If her toys are all over or if they're picked up, I can't pick them up very effectively and I can't enjoy it being picked up if I start belly aching about how it is good or bad. And I that that is so freeing or it just uh permits me to go in and either pick up the toys or go, ah, oh, she didn't get her toys out. So there's freedom there, I think. There is freedom. There's also transformation because it changes your lived experience. Oh, for sure. For sure. So can, can you say a little bit more on that transformation? Sure. So, you know, the idea of these Four Noble Truths being that suffering exists and there are things you can do to create suffering and then, you know, non-suffering or well-being exists and you can do things to create that. As I've said, you know, over the last year or so, two to three years, really, I've uh, been kind of walking a path of figuring these sorts of things out, which means that um, I've had to stop and slow down. You mentioned that as being an important part. I think that's really a big key. There's a story that you know, there's this person walking down a trail and he sees a, a guy riding a horse full speed right at him. Guy's curious where the person on the horse is going. And so as he's flying by, he uh, yells out, you know, where are you going? And the guy on the horse goes, I don't know, ask the horse. Right. That's the classic one. And that is what we tend to do. We tend to be reactive. We tend to let our emotions just run with us. And we move out of our prefrontal cortex. We move out of our rational brain into our physiological state of arousal in terms of like fight, flight, or freeze. I mean, that's what happens with trauma response. Um, and we do that. And so the stopping part of Buddhism, which we gain through meditation and through mindfulness, causes us to be able to stop and start controlling the horse. You know, the horse may spook, but we can get it back under control pretty quick. That's transformational to be able to do that. I, I think about relationships in my life where, you know, a lot of distress was caused. And you think about what this relationship, what you want it to be, what it was supposed to be, and all this anguish that occurs with that, right? And then realizing it's not that. 
and it's something different. And then realizing, well, how do I tend to what it is instead of what I wish it would be? That's life changing. Well, and and I think uh, I want to interject here. There's um, another teacher shared with our uh, our sangha here in Tulsa, and this fellow really drew our attention to the fact that back to your horse, that what happens there is so the horse runs astray and it's headed somewhere that's dangerous. Better that you're calm and aware to exert influence versus being maniacally out of your mind or or passively don't care. And they said, so now we're getting in to some extent the whole middle path concept, you know, to, to kind of back to that balance, staying down the middle versus having an overreaction one way or the other, because that's only going to contribute to the horse being crazier and crazier and hurting itself and you. Yeah. And I think also there, we should note from a psychological perspective, there is some thrill in riding an out of control horse, right? Initially at least. And then, then it becomes really unpleasant, really fast and somebody's going to get hurt. But you know, there's, there's a draw to it at first and that's passion. It feels good. But then there's the other side of that that's um, you're going to fall off the horse at some point. Well, I, st- I still say you can be passionate and engaged from that middle path or that calm perspective. It's not that we become depassionate, but it's we're able to tend to our passion and nurture it and be present with it. So that's how I would look at it. Yeah. Also, you're able to look into the passion and see what it is. And, and to talk more about that transformational piece, I'll share a personal story. Um, you know, Steve knows this and people in my life know this, but I've just recently got divorced. And that was a, a, a challenging um, experience because this person I cared very much about, care do, still do care very much about. Um, but some of our conversations that led to us deciding to get divorced were very much tied into this. You know, we were experiencing a large amount of suffering. And we realized that the reason we were suffering is because we wanted the relationship to be different than what it was. Uh, we had these ideas, these mental formations of what this relationship should be. And it wasn't that. And trying to force it to be that was really painful for all parties involved. And so then you ask the question of, okay, so what do we do to understand what this actually is and to create space for it to be what it is and to tend to it in the form that it is? And um, that path brought much less suffering. We actually get along better now than we have in years and we're divorced. And so it's there's sadness in that. There's all kind of unpleasant emotions, things that we don't enjoy feeling, but it is a more accurate state. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great example. And it's almost as if you can tend to the reality of what's going on versus trying to hold on to an idea of what it means to be married. Is that accurate? You you take a look at where you're at and and you realize this isn't where I would want to be and I'd want it to be different. Going with the example of the horse, you can be on an out of control horse and be screaming, I'm not on a horse, I'm fine. Doesn't change the fact you're on a horse. Right. What is is that you're on a horse that's out of control. So you can understand that and you can start trying to um, influence, as you said. You have the relationship as it is. You have the relationship as you would want it to be. And it's not that. So then how do you look into what is and feed the healthy parts of that? We get into this more with the, with the Four Noble Truths in terms of the path to suffering, Ill, well-being and ill-being. And that, you know, you feed things that cause ill-being and you can feed things that cause well-being. And so what do you feed that creates well-being in terms of your relationships, in terms of your relationship with yourself, in terms of your relationship with the world, uh, the people that are important to you, knowing that the goal is not happiness. The goal is understanding, transformation, and to my mind, authentic living as well. Yeah. And I, I would add to this conversation that you have to get beyond intellectual binary 
thinking. You have to really put these Four Noble Truths to work in your life. And that some people talk about owning them, embracing them, ingesting them. And um, now that I'm on the, the fellow that taught at the temple for a while, he made another comment and another lesson. And he said, you know, Buddhism is something that you do. You have to go out and apply it. Very pragmatic. And he said there are three pillars to, uh, uh, he didn't say mental health, but healthy psychological and spiritual health. And that is scholarship. You know, you study the sutras, you study the Buddha's teaching, people teaching about Buddhism, and then the words from the Buddha. But you've got to then go out and meditate and have that somatic, you know, breathing in and breathing out to kind of get it ingested, so to speak. And then you have to go out and practice it. And there's a loop that's a, a tripod, scholarly, intellectual, applying it in your life, meditating, cleaning the pipes, and you just go through your life cycle doing those things. And you can attend more to what you need to attend to. And I think that was transformative for me, most definitely. It took a few years to really get that tripod working, meditate, apply it, read about it, apply it. But yeah, a lot. most everyone will tell you that Buddhism is something that you do. You can't just learn it in a book, as my mom used to say. You got to go out and apply it. Well, you know, it's a practice. It's very difficult to actually engage in a practice. Um, I got into counseling and psychology. My undergrad was in psychology, then degrees in counseling after that. Uh, because of philosophy. Um, I found it fascinating. Buddhism has a philosophy, but it's not a philosophy. Um, I also don't look at it as my religion, right? It's a way of looking at the world. Um, it's a framework for understanding, but it's also something you do. And I think that's what separates it from standard philosophy. You know, if you go read Nietzsche or Socrates, you know, it doesn't tell you how to live in the same way, um, where Buddhism actually outlines you know, the Eightfold Path, which we'll get into probably in our next podcast, um, but which is the kind of way to create well-being. And, you know, you mentioned kind of that tripod, and you've also, in our conversations before, talked about how Buddhism loves numbers. You know, you have your Four Noble Truths and your 12 turnings. So with suffering, you have recognition is the first turning of the wheel. That's This is suffering, encouragement that you should understand suffering, and then the realization that suffering is understood. Then with the arising of suffering, there's an ignoble way that has led to suffering. The ignoble way should be understood, that encouragement and the realization that it is understood. Same thing with cessation of suffering, that po it is possible, the understanding, sorry, the recognition that you can understand that well-being is possible, that you should try to obtain it, and that it is obtained, and then also the Eightfold Path of how well-being is obtained. So from all of that, so could we say then that the intellect can get in the way? Oh, I, I think so. Absolutely. And then the remedy would be to be more what? To be more engaged in life? To be more present? See, I, I'm going back and forth in my head, and part of the reason we wanted to do the podcast was because of there's so many interrelated, in my book, uh, concepts between certain schools of psychology, maybe more so than others, but between Buddha's teaching and and Western psychologists. Well, to my mind, the one that really fits um, my understanding the best, um, which is why this has clicked for me, it was like I said, I like Viktor Frankl. I'm an existentialist, and his version of therapy is focused on meaning. And you know, my major takeaway from that, because you know, I spent a lot of my twenties trying to figure out what is my meaning, what is my purpose in life. Like that's something you can figure out and then hold on to. Like once you've got that, you're okay, which is again that like I need to have it be a certain way and that attachment to the idea that if I find my meaning, I will then be happy, which, you know, that actually creates more suffering from our understanding of suffering. 
But my takeaway from his writings is that you can't know the meaning of your life until the end of your life. And then you look back and see if your life had meaning. It's not something that you can know until the end. And it's not something that you find. It's something that you create. Choice by choice, moment by moment, you construct a life of meaning. And that can feel overwhelming to folks. But then there's a shift that happens when you realize, I may have been living in a way that was causing my life to not have the meaning I wanted, you know, or was not creating meaning that was sustaining my life. But now I can choose to be different. I can choose to engage differently in my life and start constructing. And, and it builds momentum. So that construction process is a lot of what happens in therapy and then post-therapy for clients when they don't need their therapist anymore. It also can be looked at as the Eightfold Path, as a prescription for a construction of a life that can bear meaning. So that's how I tie those psychological concepts together. I really like that. Because I, I was going to say the, the Buddhist teachings, what gave them gravity? Um, in my in my searching was the fact that so many people followed this path and many, many people reported being calmer, being able to attend more to the things that are important to them. And a lot of psychological meaning comes about when you're just you're just there to witness experience versus trying to change and neurotically trying to manipulate. Well, I, I think that, you know, we create our existence. Um, I'm not going to remember the story, but I was, you know, someone was trying to figure out the nature of heaven and hell. And the, the point of the story is that heaven and hell both exist in your mind, right? It's something that is created. And it's created, in my view, by the stories we tell ourselves um, and by not having an accurate understanding of things as they are, as opposed to things how they, we want them to be. I think suffering is hell. It's a lack of understanding. I really think that is, you know, a lack of true understanding. Yeah, you make me also think of, um, used to teach grief and loss and um, studied it for quite a while. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but it, it was really intriguing to me uh, right after grad school. And there's a way that we can, we have to stop and make meaning of the loss. And so that idea of meaning making, and it's not just in, in grief and loss counseling, but that idea of it's better to make meaning, to be creative to create a system that is congruent and that works for you. So you make me think of the meaning-making concept and how Buddhism, for me, was the best way to orient toward reality, to create a very meaningful life. Pre-Buddhism, not as happy, not as content, struggle with a lot of things, attached to a lot of things. And I'm certainly not there in a 100% turn, but it's much easier to create meaning if I'm not overly attached to how things turn out or averting things that I don't want to deal with. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, and to me, again, the idea of happiness is a byproduct, not the end goal, right? Um, maybe I experience happiness more. Maybe I don't. I probably realize it when it's happening more. I, I probably appreciate it more. But it's also just more engaged living, more being aware of where you are in each moment choosing to see it for what it is and make what you can of it. I got this metaphor from a podcast, uh, the Secular Buddhism podcast, um, which I believe we've referenced. And if we haven't, we'll reference it again, I'm sure. It's by Noah Rochetta. But, you know, one of the things that's been really helpful for that is he talks about how, you know, we tend to live life like we're playing a game of chess and we're trying to think three moves ahead. And then we make judgments about how things should go or shouldn't go or what's right or what's wrong. And that causes us a lot of distress, but that's not a um, healthy way to do it. Instead, and I don't know if he would use those terms, um, but from like a psychological perspective, those shoulds, musts, oughtas, um, those from a cognitive perspective cause 
depression and anxiety and distress, right? But instead, if we were to look at it from the lens of we're playing a game of Tetris, where we don't know what the pieces are as they're coming, we just deal with what we got as we can. We know that it's going to continually change, and we just do the best we can and construct what we can and just try to play the game without judgments of this is a bad piece, this is a good piece. It's just a piece, and then where do you put it? Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that, and when I think back on it, and having hung out with Buddhists for many years now, I think that's what happens. You start to say, hmm, how can I use this piece? Okay, this one won't fit. Let's see what else comes along. And that deconstructs, defangs that ego-centered pushing and clinging and fighting. And then you get unsatisfied or upset, and then that just adds to the noise, so to speak. And uh, you know, I think that's an apt way to look at it as a Tetris. I, I use that, too, when things get tough. Okay, here's here's what I've been given. What can I do with it? And sometimes I can't do anything with it. I just want to put it down and run. But at least I stop and give it some time before I run uh, without considering it. Yeah. And, and a lot of times when you look into something, like when you really stop, as you said, the importance of stopping and, and you take a look into the into your experience, your emotional experience, um, you'll see that it's not as bad as it feels. And a lot of the pain you're experiencing is because you're not wanting to feel the pain. It, we talk about the two arrows in our last podcast, but you know the, the first arrow hits is what happens and the second arrow that hits that hurts 100 times worse is the story you tell yourself about what happens. It's the narrative you construct. So you have pain. You're going to get shot with arrows. It's going to hurt. But you can avoid telling yourself stories that cause more pain. And so if I'm feeling sad, if I'm grieving, and then I feel like I shouldn't be grieving, the feeling I shouldn't be grieving and the distress I feel about the fact that I'm grieving is going to be more painful to me than the actual grief. And so instead of just saying, this is where I'm at, I'm grieving right now. I'm feeling sadness. I'm experiencing sadness in this moment. That gives you the space to experience it, hold it, and then let it tell you what it needs to tell you about what you're experiencing, which is you've lost something. Emotions serve a purpose. They tell us what's important. I really do believe that. And so anger, for example, tells you that you've had a boundary violated, that you need to draw a line somewhere, that you need to create boundaries to protect yourself. That's what that emotion tells you. What you do with it can get you in trouble. If you yell, scream, and throw things, that's not a healthy way to deal with your anger. But it's not bad that you felt the anger. It just is. But the story you tell yourself from our families of like, you're not supposed to be angry or the judgments they make about angry people, all this stuff, all that crap we carry, that hurts us more than the actual anger. I thought you were going to say something that I do. Tell yourself that you've grieved enough, you know, and it's time to move on. And then boom, you walk around the corner and something hits you and you're right back in your gut. Oh, I guess I should quit doing that. I wonder, here's a secondary benefit, maybe, maybe not secondary, but why do I tell myself these stories? And to me, that really arcs us into psychology and different schools of psychology, because that's my story that I got from somewhere. And I know in my own work, that's been pivotal to just stop and say, well, now look, you can move on and not suffer, but it might be good to figure out why you told yourself this, that you should be done with grief before you ever really are. And I still haven't figured that one out, but yeah, that's a big one for me. It's like, okay, you've given this a month, a year, two years, three Oh, what? Just grieve it. Just dip into this and let it be. Well, I think we, you know, the concept interjects, you know, these unspoken rules that we get from from our families of origin, um, I think, you know, ties into that. We have these ways that we are supposed to be that are a lot of times communicated non-verbally by the way our families talk about other people or respond to us in ways that are traumatic or painful. 
little T trauma, traumatic, you know, adverse experiences we don't know what to do with. We then respond in such a ways that we create this set of rules that we've never actually explicitly thought about, but we carry. Religion does the same thing. You know, we have these rules that we carry, and, and some of them are just implicit rules that we adopt. And then we don't really take a look at them until later in life when they start to, to hurt us. They stop working for us. They start to come against how we actually are. And so, you know, we have these interjected rules about how we are supposed to grieve. When are we supposed to be done with grieving? How are we supposed to view people or things or whatever or behave or what emotions are we allowed to feel and what emotions are we not allowed to feel? Which emotions are good and which emotions are bad? Which, by the way, I will want to say, too, there is no such thing as good or bad emotions. Um, there are pleasant emotions and there are unpleasant emotions. There are emotions we like and enjoy. There are emotions we would rather not feel, but they just are. I tell my clients, you know, you stub your toe. It's not wrong that your foot hurts. It's a natural response. But then what we can do is we can start to identify what those interjects are. You know, the, the part of you that says your toe shouldn't be hurting um, and say, well, no, that's not how I actually believe. And so you then when you take a look at your interjects, kind of to finish this thought, you can identify what they are. You can decide if you want to keep them as they are, if you want to throw them out or if you want to change them and reincorporate them. That's our one of our tasks from a psychological perspective is to be engaged in our living. And now you've made me think of a Evolutionary psychologists point this out all the time, and a few have drifted over into Buddhism. Uh, they say something like this, when you really think about it, if you don't pay attention to when you should move away from things being pleasurable to get back to your life, you're going to be dysfunctional. You're going to run into some problems. And it's almost like an addiction to things going well or an addiction to things being pleasurable. And they always give the example uh, of what if after uh, a sexual experience that is pleasant, we just laid there as a species. Well, something come along and take us out. We have to get back into the game alive. So pleasure can be as big of a hang up as averting pain or suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Suffering, again, as a part of life is not the entirety of life, but it is something. And then if you look into that, you can see what you do to create the conditions for that suffering to arise. Um, I've worked with clients who have addiction issues. Um, what may be okay for one person is not okay for them. They when they're using these substances, it creates suffering. It's creating the conditions that cause suffering. And they can decide to do the very hard work of ceasing the creation of that suffering by choosing to do something different. Now, that being said, there is a physiological part of that. I mean, it's really challenging. It's chronic relapse. Um, folks struggle with that for lifetimes. And I don't want to discount that and just say, well, just choose to be different. It's not that simple. But we do things that create... If I go eat an entire cake my stomach's going to hurt. I can choose to not eat that cake, or I can choose to eat the cake and feel really good for a while and then suffer. The other thing I want to say that makes the, uh, the Four Noble Truths revolutionary, I've done a lot of study of the historical period when the Buddha became the Buddha and his teachings. Uh, and looking at India and the area that Buddhism first spread, no one was really pointing this out. No one was saying, look, let's let's stop and embrace the fact that life is this way. I mean, you had some people who were, uh, some sects who were starving themselves to death and depriving the body of needed nutrients, and you had other people who were gluttonous and whatnot. And so the Buddha came along and said, I think the problem here is this suffering thing. 
you know, this dissatisfaction thing, which years, decades, centuries later, uh, that's the core of many Buddhist psychology frameworks, that we have to be more honest, authentic, now this intersects into existentialism and humanism, about what our choices are and be more responsible to those choices. And that leads us into practicing the Eightfold Path. Well, and to, to overly simplify, and I think I said this in the last podcast, you know, you do the best you can until you can do better, then you do better. And that eightfold path is doing better. It's a way to very mindfully and consciously engage day to day. Well, I have a friend who um, yesterday we were talking, having coffee. She made a comment that the thing that she tells herself or asks herself, but again, being very authentic, genuine, and honest, did I do the best I could have? And if I can determine that for me, you know, and feel like I've given it my best attempt, then I'm more forgiving and I don't get into all the self-deprecation and such that we in the West are so good at. Just to mention, you know, we're going to talk about the Eightfold Path in our next podcast. It's the plan. Um, and then we're going to see where we go from there. But just to kind of mention what it is, it's, it's eight right ways of being, right? It's right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, diligence mindfulness and concentration. Um, and we'll dig into those. And obviously, I had that written down or I wouldn't have remembered all of them. I'm still, I was impressed. <laughs> it's because I have things written down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the Four Noble Truths arc right into this. So we're setting it up well for next time. So one of the things that we wanted to do, and I was, had this on the last podcast, but I ended up having to cut it out was kind of looking at what feeds us. And so you'd mentioned a book last time, Steve. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, the thing I'm really uh, into now is the No-Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners. Uh, Noah Rochetta, who has an excellent podcast, we both talked about it on on this. And I, I really, I've been doing this for a while, but even going back to the basics, it, it enriches practice. And so that book is just really uh, sets down the basics in a very uh, reasonable uh, understandable ma uh, manner. Really liking that a lot. Yeah, I I um I picked that up as well. I really enjoy his podcast. Um, if you're if you're enjoying this podcast, I strongly encourage you to go listen to that one. It's the Secular Buddhism Podcast. I've done a fair amount of reading. Obviously, not as much as Steve. He's been doing this for a while. I've been doing it for about a year, and so I don't pretend to have great depths of knowledge on it. I just know what I know. But a lot of what I know came from listening to that podcast because he breaks it down in such a way that it's really applicable and understandable, um, very concrete in terms of like, here's ways to be, like here's things you can do, which I think is really helpful. Um, our hope is that this podcast, you know, leads to a better understanding of how this might be, you know, spirituality in general can intersect in your life in a way that creates more meaning um, and how it can impact your mental health and those sorts of things. Um, but that's that's uh, one that has been helpful to me and my path, for sure. Well, we will go ahead and wrap this one up. I would, again, like to thank you for listening, and hopefully you found this enjoyable. We look forward to talking to you all soon. 